Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper, Prevalence of Cerebral Palsy, Co-Occurring Autism Spectrum Disorders and Motor Functioning, Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, US 2008, which is by Christensen and colleagues, and is going to be published in the January 2014 issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Daisy Christensen, epidemiologist in the Division of Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities at the CDC Atlanta, USA, who's the first author, and Professor Lonnie Zweigenbaum, who is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Alberta, Canada, where he has a special interest in autism spectrum disorders. Professor Zweigenbaum has also written a commentary on the article. Please can we start with you, Daisy, to outline the paper and the background. Sure. Thank you, Dr. Baxter. So this study presents the most recent findings from the cerebral palsy surveillance activities of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Our surveillance system is called the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring, or ADAM, network, and it monitors the prevalence and characteristics of children with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, and other developmental disabilities, including cerebral palsy, in communities across the United States. All of the surveillance sites monitor autism, and four sites additionally monitor the prevalence of cerebral palsy. An important feature of the ADAM network is that it monitors the prevalence of developmental disabilities like cerebral palsy and ASD among eight-year-old children. One of the advantages to conducting cerebral palsy surveillance in this age group is the ability to ascertain co-occurring conditions like ASD, which might not be picked up at an earlier age. We were interested in looking at co-occurring ASD among children with cerebral palsy for several reasons. First, the co-occurrence of behavioral and social-emotional developmental disorders along with cerebral palsy has been highlighted recently. And these co-occurring conditions can prove challenging to a child's ability to function and participate, maybe as much or even more so than the physical limitations themselves. So knowing as much as we can about the characteristics of the children with cerebral palsy allows us to provide useful information to our communities and the people who plan and provide services for children with disabilities. And secondly, the co-occurrence of developmental disabilities may help us understand more about the causes and risk factors for these conditions. So, for example, we know that some perinatal factors, such as premature birth and low birth weight, are associated with a higher risk of cerebral palsy, as well as other developmental disabilities, such as ASD, although there certainly are different strengths of association between those characteristics and those conditions. But in any case, looking at the characteristics of children with cerebral palsy who also have ASD might help us understand more about both of these conditions. So in this study, we estimated that the prevalence of cerebral palsy was 3.1 per 1,000 eight-year-old children, and this estimate was little changed from previous years. About 40% of the children also had epilepsy, and nearly 7% also had ASD. And there were several interesting findings in addition to these. First of all, the frequency of ASD among children with CP hasn't really changed much in recent years. While in contrast, we've seen the prevalence of ASD rise dramatically in the general population during the same time period. When we looked at the characteristics of these children and compared them to children with CP who didn't have ASD, there were several interesting findings. One was that among children with spastic CP, ASD was equally likely to occur among children with unilateral or bilateral CP. Another was that more children with CP and ASD had non-spastic CP. Nearly all of these children with non-spastic CP with ASD had hypotonic CP, 
and this is interesting because low tone and other motor difficulties have been reported among children with ASD, although obviously not as clinically significant as what we saw in this study. There's been some debate about whether motor findings are core symptoms of ASD or not, but there's increasing evidence that motor skills and social communication skills may be more closely linked than previously believed. Another interesting finding was that among these children with CP, epilepsy was equally frequent among children with and without co-occurring ASD. Although in other studies that examined clinical samples of children with CP, those with co-occurring ASD were more likely to have epilepsy. There's still a lot of work to be done to understand how these conditions, that is CP, ASD, epilepsy, and I'll add intellectual disability into the mix there, although that was not covered in this manuscript, how these conditions relate to each other and may even possibly share some common pathways. So these data provide us some interesting clues for us, the next step is to look at perinatal factors and other factors as well as other co-occurring conditions such as intellectual disability and epilepsy among children with CP and co-occurring ASD to see how these differ from children with CP who don't have ASD. And what we will plan to do is look within our Atlanta surveillance site where we've been conducting surveillance on cerebral palsy since 1991 and on ASD since 1996. Here in the Atlanta site, we're unique among the sites that participate in the ADAMS-CP network in that we also conduct surveillance for intellectual disability, vision impairment, and hearing loss. And so it's really in these data that we'll be able to make those important stratifications based on cognitive deficit, intellectual disability, and try to tease out these relationships in a little bit more detail. First, I wanted to congratulate Dr. Christensen and her group. I mean, it's a beautifully done study. For people not familiar with the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, it's really a very comprehensive and thorough surveillance program that takes into account both existing diagnoses but also independent uh, file review in order to detect uh, cases that may not have been diagnosed clinically. So it's a really important opportunity to look at issues of ascertainment around special populations. Certainly, clinically, one has colleagues who sort of work in different areas of developmental medicine, and when one happens to sort of bump into each other in the hall and discuss the kids that we're seeing, we recognize that there are some common issues and ultimately some overlapping diagnoses. And I, I think this kind of study really highlights for people who have a more focused or circumscribed area of practice that it's important to consider the broader range of challenges that can occur together with a particular developmental diagnosis, and particularly the association between CP and ASD is really important to emphasize here. Really interesting questions, I think, come out of this study around etiology and issues of ascertainment and then, of course, sort of the clinical implications of the finding. Maybe the first thing to clarify, particularly for those readers less familiar with ADDM, is the base rate of autism prevalence within uh, the network, which has been cited at 1 in 88 in other studies of the full network based on the 2008 data that forms the basis of this study. But Dr. Christensen, can you comment specifically, is that roughly similar to the rate of autism within the particular four sites that you're reporting on here? That's a great question. I mean, it's important to recognize that the prevalence of ASD really varies geographically, as we've seen in our study site. We generally have compared it with the overall prevalence, which, as you say, the reference here would be 1 in 88. 
I mean, my impression was that it was very similar and that in the reporting of the relative risks and so on, it suggested that the rate was somewhere around 1%. That would be my guess. I mean, I'm yeah. cycling through the sites that are participate, those four sites, and what their exact prevalences were. I and think it would be very close to 1%. I, I think the takeaway point is that clearly among children with CP, the prevalence is much higher. You spoke very thoughtfully on sort of the range of possibilities that may increase the co-occurrence of these disorders, I think ranging from neurobiology, the specific genetics, possible sort of possible causes that may not be directly genetically determined, such as prematurity. I mean, it's interesting that the, clearly both autism spectrum disorder and cerebral palsy are highly heterogeneous disorders. I recognize that at this point there isn't a lot of data to sort of guide the discussion around etiology. I'm interested sort of as a scientist, your sense of what may be some of the drivers of the association. We are obviously limited in our data in our ability to really address etiology. I mean, we certainly know that there's evidence of shared risk factors, although the strength and the magnitude of the association really differ by which developmental condition you're looking at. So we obviously know that low birth weight and prematurity and infection and genetics are all very strong risk factors for CP. And there is evidence that low birth weight and extreme prematurity, particularly extreme prematurity, are also risk factors for ASD, but as we know, the magnitude of the association is much, much lower. Now, I think it's a perennial question in CP, sort of what the absolute ultimate cause is that then has several other things that we measure along the way, which may be in a causal pathway or may be just common outcomes of a single cause, uh, for example, prematurity. I cannot speak to the genetic research in this, but I think that that is potentially a very fruitful place to consider looking at some of these as we learn more about the different genetic markers that are associated with ASD. I mean, I do think it's important what you said initially is that these are very heterogeneous conditions. They likely have multiple pathways. And as we know with ASD, there's still a lot of debate about what constitutes ASD. We see clinical diagnostic criteria changing and what sort of pathways lead to classic autistic disorder versus a much more mild social communication disorder. It's a very interesting area for further research. Very good points, and, and I appreciate, and I, and I think we'll really look forward to sort of learning more about this cohort, particularly as you start to stratify by different risk factors like prematurity, sort of different developmental levels, just to understand sort of how that association may vary across those types of subgroups. And then I think you raised interesting issues around assessment and measurement of symptoms and how we have to be vigilant that we're not missing social communication impairment in children who have complex developmental disabilities such as cerebral palsy, particularly in association with severe motor impairment, severe kind of oral motor communication impairment as well as other motor disabilities. As you pointed out, the screening tools and the diagnostic assessment tools, because it's sort of an underappreciated association, they haven't been specifically evaluated and validated in these subgroups. So I, I think clinicians find themselves having to rely both on the best available measures but also on their best clinical judgment. 
you commented that this is a population really to make sure that we're not missing autism. Any sense, even from the file review, where there were additional cases that were detected, who were the kids with CP who were being missed through the clinical system that were identified through the surveillance network? You commented that, that one particular association was the uh, hypotonic group. Any further thoughts on the particular group that are flying under the radar and any implications for people who work in the area to make sure that these kids aren't getting missed? Sure. I mean, there was nothing that really stood out in terms of the characteristics of the children who did not have a diagnosis in the community compared to the children that did. And in fact, I just know off the top of my head that all those children with hypotonic CP actually had a community diagnosis. So I don't have any specific advice for clinicians other than saying, as the AAP has recommended, and, and you know, we're all feeling we need to be vigilant for signs of developmental delays and problems in all children and recognize that this can be specifically challenging in children with multiple disabilities particularly with physical and sensory disabilities, because it's right. very hard to then discern ASD versus other manifestations that it may be more directly related to their cerebral palsy. You know, it strikes me that one of the lessons from your study is working with children and maintaining a pretty broad lens in thinking around issues of developmental disability. I mean, working in the autism field, and in particular having an interest in early development and early signs in infancy, I can imagine that there's actually sort of a risk of under-ascertainment of CP and other neuromotor disorders when there's too much of a focus on autism as well. I mean, as you alluded to, there's some interesting data coming out around early motor differences in infants at risk of autism, and some groups have reported things like persistent head lag, general decrease in motor control, describing sort of uh, hypotonia. Of course, these signs, in combination with social communication differences, may very well be predictive of ASD, but in a broader population context, I think all of us are going to have to just be very vigilant for neuromotor disorders as well, that when we see a child with a head lag or poor motor control, it's going to be important that we not only think about autism, but also think about the range of neuromotor disorders that can present this way as well. Absolutely. I mean, in reading the literature, it really strikes me how we're learning that children with motor disabilities may really need and can benefit from social-emotional interventions. And I guess I want to say that an advantage to the ADAM network is that we don't rely on a diagnosis of ASD. And sometimes I think that with children with these very severe disabilities, the provider may not feel comfortable making a formal diagnosis, but that does not preclude interventions that can address social-emotional issues. And in contrast, we're learning that, as you just said, children with social-emotional disabilities can really benefit from interventions to improve motor skills. And that better motor skills are actually associated with better communication skills. So it really is looking at the whole child and bearing in mind the guidance for developmental screening. And it, it's funny to me that the last summer the AAP issued recommendations on screening for motor delays in children, and it struck me that it felt like we were sort of coming full circle, that we got used to only looking at motor milestones and then we began saying, no, you need to look at social-emotional milestones. We have the Learn the Signs Act Early campaign here at CDC that helps people identify those social milestones. And yet we're kind of going back now and saying, well, yes, we may be more aware of those motor milestones, but are we really looking at them in a way that's helpful as those early signs, as you say, of a number of different 
developmental outcomes that we could possibly intervene in? Well, you know, it's an interesting issue. I mean, just in preparing for this discussion, I was doing a bit of reading because CP is not my primary area, and it was interesting to find that there was kind of this parallel discussion around attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in cerebral palsy, both in terms of specific diagnoses and sort of a broader range of processing and, and attention issues. And it kind of begs the question, now that this study is orienting people who primarily work with kids with CP, should the takeaway be sort of adding kind of ASD surveillance, sort of focusing on specific signs of ASD and incorporating ASD screening tools and so on, or should it be broader than that? Should it be ASD plus sort of the broader range of, of learning and mental health disorders? And I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we feel strongly that we should be addressing the broader range, that we can't, we can't focus exclusively on ASD. We have to look at other issues, and I think that that really is the, you know, the sort of driving force behind the AAP recommendations for developmental screening. I mean, yes, a lot of that has been informed by the work, you know, in the need and the importance for doing early ASD screening, but it really is broader than that. Yeah. It'll be interesting to discover one day whether this is sort of a bimodal or kind of outlier group of children with severe social communication impairments who have autism, or if it represents sort of more of a shift in the distribution and that children with CP more broadly are at risk of social communication and emotional regulation difficulties. And in a sense, screening for autism may just open the conversation to talk about these social-emotional issues and, as you say, really could benefit benefit a broader range of children within the population and that supports and interventions could be focused not simply on whether or not the child has autism, but just sort of addressing this important domain of development. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. You may be aware the definition of CP was recently revised to emphasize that children have motor difficulties, but they also have social, emotional behavioral issues that need to be addressed along with the physical problems. And I think one of our particular worries is that children, especially with very severe physical limitations, the, the challenges of making a formal diagnosis or even of assessment, and but also the sort of the priority of thinking what additional benefit can this child gain from interventions to address social-emotional issues. And I just think that that can't be minimized that that really may be more than we think. It's encouraging at a time that our both our research and clinical work often becomes highly specialized, that we're sort of coming back together and recognizing that there's actually the universal set of challenges that children with developmental disorders can face, and that we actually have a lot to learn from one another, and collaboration remains sort of more important than ever in terms of sharing experience and expertise and making sure that we're able to take a holistic approach to these various populations. I agree, absolutely. One of the things that we struggle with clinically at times is the whole question of an ASD diagnosis in a child with a complex and profound developmental disabilities, sort of motor handicap, intellectual handicap, and we often really grapple with this issue of whether the autism diagnosis will provide further insight into the dilemma of this child and further guide intervention. And, and sometimes we find ourselves struggling to make sense both of the screening and the standardized assessment data because on one hand the impairments are very clear and yet it's not always 
straightforward whether the social communication impairment is over and above what one might anticipate given the range of other impairments in sensory function, motor function, intellectual function. And again, I think your study reminds us this is an important population to focus on, and I think we need further research to help guide us in when an autism diagnosis is meaningful in a child who, who really has a profound complex disability. We really struggle with that, too, when I think about children that I've seen, and it is so hard to discern what is arising from the many effects of what is often a very devastating neurologic injury. And we're surveillance people here, and we we want children to be diagnosed. We want to count them so that we can get a handle and learn as much as we can, as well as provide information back to the communities and the service providers for these children. But I guess I can't emphasize enough that we can do interventions with these children even in the absence of a formal diagnosis, and that I think it really goes back to looking at the whole child. I think that's a very good point, that these decisions, it's important to approach them in a sensitive and individual way. And I think we also have to be careful about the assumptions that we make, that there's interesting focus within the autism field on individuals who are nonverbal. And I think it's really pointing to some of the false assumptions that we make about people that are nonverbal, about their intellectual capacity, about their potential to contribute. And I think there's a risk of seeing a child with a complex disability that involves impairment in motor function in making assumptions about really what their communication and intellectual capacity is. And again, I I think your study reminds us that it's perfectly valid to apply autism diagnostic criteria. It may require sort of careful clinical judgment, but we should never exclude the possibility simply because a child has a motor disability. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that highlights the need for better diagnostic instruments that are designed for children with other disabilities, and really not just for for ASD. I mean, we've seen among children with ASD the need for better instruments to measure cognitive performance that really may be hidden by the child's social and communication deficits. And so I think in the same way, looking for tools that we can use to assess a range of aspects in children with physical disabilities is really important. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for the opportunity to speak and to weigh in on this terrific study. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We've now come to the end of our podcast time. Thank you very much to Daisy Christensen and Professor Lonnie Seigenbaum for a really fascinating discussion and the insights it gives to the challenges there are in this field which are really important, obviously, to overcome. I just want to remind our listeners that the article is Prevalence of Cerebral Palsy, Co-Occurring Autism Spectrum Disorders and Motor Functioning, Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network, US 2008, by Christensen et al. in the January 2014 issue. Thank you very much.